Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 168 and this episode is with Professor Michael Gleason. Michael is an expert in metabolism, nutrition, exercise, physiology and fitness. He's got a PhD in diet and exercise metabolism, 40 years experience of teaching, research and writing, author of over 200 publications in peer-reviewed science and medical journals, author of over 30 chapters in various science and medical books. He's also a speaker at international conferences on exercise, nutrition and health, and now an author of books providing comprehensive evidence-based advice on healthy lifestyle behaviours and weight loss. Michael is also a nutrition consultant for elite athletes and footballers. So Michael's someone that's got um, incredible knowledge and experience in the world of nutrition. So that is what we delve into in this episode. We spoke about the importance of nutrition and Michael touched on um, some of Arsene Wenger's philosophy around nutrition, what he wanted um, from the nutrition side of, of a player's preparation the food first philosophy, we talked about supplements, uh, when we should take supplements and why. We spoke about how players' lifestyles away from training ground and, and the pitch dictate what we should do with the nutrition. We spoke about some positional differences, um, the role of caffeine, utilising hydration and feeding opportunities within a game but also away from the pitch as well. How the modern game demands impact the approach of nutrition um, and then we also spoke about being vegan or vegetarian and some of Michael's views on that. So we covered absolutely loads in this episode. And we did mention in the episode as well that if you do have anything specific you, might, you want Michael to come back on and speak about, we will do a part two of the podcast too and just go into a few areas. So if you've got any questions, fire them into mail at footballfitfed.com. Or you can send them over on social media, either Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn as well. Um, just search either Football Fitness Federation on LinkedIn or at Football Fit Fed over on Instagram or Twitter. So uh, any questions you've got for Michael, send them in and we'll get that part two organised. Just before we get into the podcast, I've got an announcement for our first event of 2022. Um, we are going to be on Thursday the 27th of January, 6 till 9pm. We're going to be down at Bristol City at the High Performance Centre, the training ground at Bristol City. We will be announcing the speakers of that event very soon. Um, but if you go to footballfitfed.com, click the shop tab and tickets are available there. Go and grab yourself an early bird ticket and come and join us for an evening of networking at the first event of the year. We are going to be following this announcement with some more events coming in the first quarter of, of 2022 as well. So I hope to see many of the listeners there as possible. Let's get into the podcast now. Episode 168 with Professor Michael Gleason. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 168. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Professor Michael Gleason. Michael, how are you? Very good, thank you. Good, good. Fresh from a holiday. So yeah, you I, can see the tan, yeah. <laughs> I can see the tan, I can. So I hope you had a good one and thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, you're very welcome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about this. It's one of my favourite topics, talking about football and anything to do with football. And nutrition is something that I know a little bit about. 
Brilliant. Yeah. And as you could probably tell, it's an area that really interests me as well, seeing as I sent you about four pages of topics that we could potentially discuss. <laughs> so we'll see how we go. Um, but your new book is, am I right in saying it's out as we record this or it's coming out? It, it's coming out. It was actually, it's been in the warehouse since actually September and there've been all these delivery issues and uh, I think a change of company taking over the warehouse or it moving or something. We keep getting different stories. It'll be out, I hope, before Christmas, hopefully. That's what we were hoping for. If not, it'll be early in the new year. Perfect. And you were very kind to send a, a copy over on email, which I've had a look through and there's some amazing information in there. What was the reason for writing this book? Uh, really? Well, i say I've had a long-standing interest in sport nutrition, published a few books related to that, and metabolism and exercise. And then I got involved in writing this uh, UEFA expert group statement on nutrition in elite football. And that was published just last year. Well, the actual hard copy came out this year in the journal, in the British Journal of Sports Nutrition, Sports Medicine, sorry. And uh, yeah, it's a science paper. It's written for scientists. It's about the macronutrient and micronutrient requirements in the supplement ergogenic effects of certain dietary supplements uh, for elite footballers. But it doesn't translate it into information that you, you know the, your average footballer can understand. So that was the aim of the book, to take that science information, evidence-based information about what footballers should be eating, when they should be eating it, how much of it they should be eating on different days, training days, match days, et cetera, recovery days, and put that into information that the uh, the uh, the average footballer, professional or amateur, right down to pub-level teams, can understand. And to do that, you've also got to take that information and put it into real foods. So got on board a couple of excellent uh, performance chefs, Rachel Muse and Bruno Cirillo, who's also head of nutrition at FC Nordland, if I can pronounce it correctly, in the, the Danish Superliga. Uh, you know, they provided some great recipes of real meals that people can make. Very simple, but very tasty, delicious, very nutritious meals that are suitable for training days and match days, both pre-match and post-match meals. Brilliant. And I was going to ask you initially about the importance of nutrition, not to, I think we, we do understand that nutrition is pretty important in the, in the modern game. But when I was reading the book and I made that little note, there was obviously the, the approach of Arsene Wenger or the views of Arsene Wenger. So can you, can you summarize that for the listeners? Because I think that really that does a great job in, in giving that importance, doesn't it, behind nutrition? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Arsene was one of the very first managers at top level football that was able to actually understand and apply the importance of nutrition for performance and recovery in football. So we have to credit him and the likes of Alex Fergus and others that brought in uh, guys uh, like Trevor Lee to, to, to do the nutrition for their, for their teams. And they got a, you know, a step ahead with that in the game. Um, and Arsene's, you know, you know, like any, <laughs> if you're working for somebody in any sort of industry, you want to know what the boss wants. So what's the priorities that a manager wants? Well, probably first and foremost, they focus on actual performance in competition and, in, in you know, for match day, 
nutrition. They want to know you want uh, nutrition that will provide uh, energy and the appropriate fuels for them to get the uh, peak performance, both in the game and to be able to perform hard training during the week. They're always concerned to some degree with body composition. One manager I I've heard quoted was said uh, to say, uh, you know, the job of the nutritionist in my team is not to have any fat bastards. You know, I mean, it, it's, <laughs> this is real talk from real managers. This is how they speak, you know, and that is the real priority body composition for, for, for a manager. He doesn't want lazy fat players in his team. He wants the fit young, well, not so young necessarily, but he wants them fit and, you know, ready to go. And that means they've got to be, you know, reasonably lean with a reasonable amount of body, of body fat. You know, they've got to be fueled up for a 90-minute match to play the full 90 minutes and even possibly an extra time if required in some games. And then they want speedy recovery after the matches. And then the other main concern is just the overall health of the players because players who are injured or ill are not going to get into the, uh, you know, get into the, the match day team. So those are his priorities. There's other issues as well to do with hydration, to do with the impact of nutrition on sort of mental cognitive function, the ability to adapt to training, particularly during pre-season training. There's also an impact of nutrition on how well you sleep and on your immune function and susceptibility to infection, which is obviously even more important now in the days of COVID. Yeah, you read my mind then because I was about to ask, would you add, would there be anything else that you would add on onto that list? Because it's great to get the manager's perception and a manager, obviously, like Arsene Wenger, one of the best has been, um, their perception on what they want, isn't it? Because essentially, like you say, he, he's leading the whole process. To, so to get his point of view is a great starting point, isn't it? But then to get someone like yourself to add the expertise and see the other areas you can influence, that's really important as well. Yeah, and that, that's about, you know, also... Sort of educating the manager as well from the nutritionist perspective he's got a particular focus on the things he wants but you know making him aware of the, some of these wider issues as well because ultimately you know the illness the sleep and all that and even sort of you know rehabilitation from injury nutrition has an impact on all these things and ultimately it does depend it does influence the availability of players to train and to perform on match day and you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's about the overall health of the individuals as well. And when we're thinking and referring to like those four points, really, that he that he makes, that he wants from his point of view, where do you think um, we possibly need to improve on? Is the one that stands out to say like, OK, we focus and this is just an example, but we focus well on fueling players for match days. We don't focus so much on the health or is there, is there something else? Is there, is there other priorities? It's not so much the priorities, I think. It's it's what, what's coming up that's new in science that you can apply to football. And for example, there's one new finding, or relatively new finding, although it was published five years ago, that most I think most clubs actually haven't picked up on yet, and that's to do with the influence on creatine ingestion together with carbohydrate to boost glycogen resynthesis, the main fuel that uh, is used in the muscles for match play uh, in football that uh, uh, has, has come out and uh, not many clubs are applying probably because they've never heard of it before but it is something I do mention in my book and anybody can use that practice to 
improve their recovery from a game. And it becomes especially important at this time of year when, uh, you know, games are coming, COVID permitting, that is, yeah. uh, two, two or three, every two or three days. So it's about understanding the, sometimes actually just discovering those new things that are coming out in sport nutrition. I mean, beetroot juice and, you know, dietary nitrate came out probably, you know, 10 years ago and has begun to be applied probably by most clubs, I would expect, uh, in football by now. Sometimes it just takes those few clubs to make that first step, doesn't it? And then people tend to oh, catch yeah, on to yeah. There's like a delay, isn't there, before the research coming out and then things being put into practice, which is understandable, yeah. I suppose, as well. And some clubs, yeah, quite understandably, some clubs, when you first tell them about some of these issues, um, want to keep it a little quiet to begin with so that they, they get a step ahead. It's all about getting a step ahead of the composition, competition in, in, in many cases in in virtually all sports, that's the case. And that's what happened in Brit- you know, British cycling 10, 12 years ago when they started to do these little minor things that made a big overall effect in terms of winning medals. Brilliant. I know you've touched on some supplementation there, but can you talk to us about the food first philosophy? Uh, yeah, it's very simple philosophy, and that is that first and foremost, you should have a healthy, uh, well-balanced and, and varied diet. And you get that from the food and drinks that you consume. You know, that, that that's what you need essentially to be healthy and to be able to get the energy you need to perform any sort of sport. And at the end of the day, yeah, you can use selected but evidence-based in other words, supplements uh, to add to that, but only choosing the ones that you know work or are very likely to work because you've seen the same supplements working for maybe just in laboratory experiments where they're involving you know repeated high intensity exercise that you have that you have in, in in football matches. So yeah, food first because that's always best. Should People should never reply, rely on supplements to replace things from a, a normal, healthy diet. You know, the supplements are right at the top end of the food pyramid and the smallest component of it. The rest below is far more important, ultimately, mm. in terms of how you perform, how you recover, and uh, how well you can be. Are there any sort of common... Um, not necessarily mistakes, but common areas that players need to improve their knowledge or their approach on. When we're talking about like the food first philosophy, like is there anything that you're looking at in terms of a lot of players need help with this? Like, is it is it because we had a little chat before we started recording about um, being able to cook? Like, is that is that one of the main things that you, you see players are lacking on, and maybe a reason why players would turn to to supplements or or something else? I suppose, yeah, it can be. I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, I think all clubs should be aiming to really educate the players so they can actually, you know, they're empowered then to actually do their own thing and do it, do it, do it right. You know, it, it, rather, most, you know, the top clubs in the EPL all employ a nutritionist. Some will be full time, some will be part time or work, at least working as, as consultants with the club. 
but you shouldn't be relying on those guys all the time. And it's, I think it's far better to you know, educate players right from the beginning, right from academy level. So they get it at an early age. And if you get into bad habits at an early age, you're probably going to carry them on into your professional career, as I know quite a number of players have. And I can't, can't name names for obvious reasons, but there are some players who just don't get it, you know, or never, were never taught it at an early age and just mm. sort of self-taught themselves. And you know, if you go back 20, well, 20, certainly 30 years ago in the game, you know, even the very top players like Alan Shearer, what did he say before he had a football game? He had, he always said he had chicken and beans. Well, it's not the best pre-match meal. Yeah, but he, he did pretty good. But then it was a pretty level playing field in those days as far as the nutrition was concerned because nobody was taking any, any, any notice of it. And you may well have noticed in your own little local football team, you know, even at the professional level, there were a few fat bastards in your team. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can remember some of all the athletics. Again, I'm not going to name names, but you know, everybody knows who they were, you know. And you know, educating the players, I think, is the, is the key. And some take it on board. I know some great, well, not great necessarily in terms of successful players, but players who've made a really good career out of it and made a much better career out of it than they probably could have done because they actually educated and learned about nutrition and then applied it to their own game. Mm, yeah, and we might have some coaches from like lower league clubs, maybe, maybe even semi-pro amateur clubs or even players listen to this as well. So when we're talking about that approach and, and possibly the use of supplements, when should they come in? So if we, if we have focused and educated around um, food first and we, we seem to have a, a nutrition approach that suits the player, when should they look for certain um, supplements to, to um, supplement the, the diet? Well, first and foremost, I would say ignore what you see on social media <laughs> and the internet. Uh, uh, you know, and Netflix and Amazon and all that, you know, there's, there's a lot of people out there trying to sell you stuff, uh, you know, and they'll make claims that are frankly not correct or, you know, they've found something that's in a clinical population. It doesn't apply to sport or even if it applies to sport and has been shown to work for some things, it might have been for a marathon runner or a cyclist. It won't necessarily work in football. So always rely on reliable evidence-based information that's been generated ultimately by by scientists uh, so take advice from your nutritionist if you've got one or if you know somebody who's been got a nutrition degree or in dietetics or something like that then they're the people to take notice of uh, and ask them i've heard about this supplement what do you think of it you know that kind of approach or go to reliable sources of written information and hope my book would be one of those because that, that that's the aim to sort of dispel the myths of some things that are claimed to work and just focus on the ones that were identified by the UEFA expert group which was actually was like 31 I think it was in total different authors including all of the UEFA ethical committee including practitioners who, who work in nutrition in professional football as well as scientists who've done the actual research on those kind of supplements you made a great point there though about social media because i know i'm sort of we joked about it but it, it's that's what play a lot of players will be doing isn't it 
that's a, that's a news source for a lot of people. So it's really important that the right information is getting out there in, in front of players because essentially a lot of you, you've talked about um, educating academy players. Academy players are spending a lot of, a lot of time as a general statement on social media. So it's it's really important that we're getting the right message out to players across the board, isn't it? Maybe even through those same sources because that's where yeah. they're, they're finding their information. Yeah, you need to focus on your own sport. I mean, don't don't take it that if something works in cycling or swimming or triathlon, it'll work in football because it probably won't. Yeah. You know, a lot of these supplements are essentially sport or activity type specific. You know, um, caffeine might work in some sports, but it won't work in ones that only last a few minutes, for example. Mm. You know, whereas other things like creatine might be good for you know, for doing weights and they might have a role in certain uh, uh, football scenarios as well because they also influence uh, repeated sprint performance and uh, muscle glycogen resynthesis after prolonged bouts of exercise like football where glycogen is the main fuel. Yeah, brilliant. And I know you mentioned in the book how um, players' lifestyles can influence the nutrition approach. Um, and it, it, it was really interesting reading it, actually, because it got me really thinking, because I think you mentioned in it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you mentioned in it about um, players living, apart from obviously the training ground and, and playing on a match day, a lot of players following quite a sedentary lifestyle because they're doing so much work at, at the training ground and at, um, on match days when they're away from that at home. In terms of if we're looking at calories, they're not burning too many calories. So that has to that has to um, inform how we like periodize and plan nutrition for players, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. If you get again, if you go back 20, 30 years ago, the, the you know, there was some assumption that uh, players oh probably something like a marathon, somebody who's training for a marathon or something like that, and other types of endurance athlete type sports, and that play you know the energy needs of footballers would be something similar. But like like you say, the players tend to do most of their exercise when they're at the training ground or, or playing a game. Outside of that, they're relatively inactive because often they're trying to rest and recover after a game or a training session. And that's what they should be doing, just focusing on their nutrition before and after the exercise they've been done, which has largely been you know, prescribed by the club, by the nature of the training they've been doing. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the amount of minutes they've been playing in a game uh, on the pitch on, on, on match day. So yeah, when, when they're at home, they're largely left to their own devices. Although at the top level, again, in the EPL and other top European leagues, a lot of them employ either the club employs them or the players employ them themselves. The, these performance chefs who can take the information that's been provided by a club uh, physiologist, fitness and conditioning coach, or a uh, nutritionist who knows what the players have been doing on a day-to-day basis or expected to be doing on a day-to-day basis and can translate that uh, 
energy requirement and the macronutrient in terms of carbohydrate and protein requirement into really nice tasty meals you know mm. so you're, you're eat, it's like eating out at a high-end restaurant every day but somebody's coming along and cooking it or pre-preparing that food and delivering it to your home so that it's ready for the the player and often their families as well to consume at that time uh, alternatively you try and educate the players partner if they're lucky enough to have a, a nice uh, shall we say lady or somebody else who will uh, ki- kindly prepare them a meal when they come back home after the uh, you know the, the, their day at the club yeah and how does that then influence so if it, we're talking like a, a midweek day and maybe the players off and the, their energy requirements going to be lower might sound obvious but what what are some of the changes that you would make to their approach on that day, bearing in mind that they're, they're probably going to go back into training the following day and they, they're going to have trained the day before? Yeah, I mean, unless they're really looking to lose body fat and lose some weight, then you know players should never actually be consuming a really low-carbohydrate diet. They always need at least a moderate amount of carbohydrate because they'll probably have trained the day before so they're going to need to recover their liver and their muscle glycogen levels to be able to train just as well the next day. You know, and every so often, again, you're, you're building up to a match day when it's going to be a high carbohydrate meals on the uh, the day before the match, on the match day itself, and the day after, which is the recovery day when you're trying to replenish everything you've, you've used up. So very rarely that players will be on a low carbohydrate intake and you also want to encourage them every day to have a relatively high protein intake for foot, sports like football. It's normally recommended to have at least 1.2 and maybe up to about 1.6 or even slightly higher grams of protein per kilogram of their body weight per day. You know, so that, that's considerably more than probably the average person eats, but that's needed to... Uh, repair those muscles and to help reduce muscle soreness after intensive training or after or after the match play. So usually the protein intake remains pretty constant no matter what sort of day it is. And it's simply adjusting the carbohydrate and the fat intake to meet the expected uh, sort of or overall daily energy requirement. You can always check whether you're actually achieving that because if, if the body weight of the player starts going up day by day, you're feeding them too much. If it's going down, you're not feeding them enough. Now, by and large, if players eat to satisfy their appetite on a daily basis, but they eat an overall healthy, varied and balanced diet with sufficient carbohydrate to meet their energy needs and this fairly constant intake of uh, of protein per day and ideally spaced out over the day uh, equally well as well so that you're having enough protein with breakfast lunch and dinner rather than concentrating all on a big protein your know, big steak meal in in the evening have more protein that you might normally have for an average person at breakfast and lunch to make sure you spread that over the day and that that's the way you maximize things like training adaptation or if you're looking to put on uh, some extra muscle because you've been, you know, managers told you you're weak in the tackle, you need to bulk up a little bit in terms of your muscle mass, then uh, that's the way to achieve it. 
And, and in terms of those off days, when we're talking about slightly adjusting carbohydrates and fat intake and whether that, and I know this will come down to the individual player as well in terms of how much, but if players are thinking, well, how much, what, what sort of a difference is it going to look like for me? So on an off day, what, how much am I taking away? How much fat am I adding? Is that, is that going to depend person to person, player to player, or is there some sort of guidelines that you follow for that? Um, well, the, the, the two main influences are, are again, you know, sort of how how much energy you've expended during the day. If you if you're not, if, you know, if, you, if it's just a complete sort of rest recovery day, which often might be sort of say the day after a game, if you've played the full ninety minutes, then you can expect, you know, for the average player, well, the average body mass is about seventy five kilos for a professional player. So, you know, you're going to need round about something 2,000 to 2,300 calories to cover your needs if you're going to be relatively sedentary, let's say, that day because you're just doing resting recovery and not much else. Um, you know, if you're doing a bit of training, then you might need to add a few hundred calories to that. And generally, the amounts of energy, protein and carbohydrate that are, players are advised to eat is generally in relation to their body mass so often it's expressed by the scientists in terms of how many grams of carbohydrate or protein do you need per kilogram body mass because obviously a you know a larger 90 kilo center half you know is going to need more than a, a diminutive uh, you know, midfield player or a skinny winger who's you know weighs maybe 60 to 70 kilograms yeah and, and getting into that sort of individualized approach as well you've just mentioned the differences between some positions um well that surely has to come into play as well from the demands on the pitch of the different positions the type of player um i suppose the type of uh body the type of um the player that you're dealing with there's a lot of factors that come into it isn't there but how is that how are you looking at the positional demands of the player affecting the approach in terms of nutrition um well sometimes it's going to be difficult to interpret i mean yeah, i mean it's fairly clear obviously that the, the the goalkeepers for example on on match day we know they need about 500 to 600 kilocalories less than the outfield players in general and that's probably true for training as well, because they just don't move around as much, you know. Um, for other positions, it really depends. It's not only just on the position. You can't just say a centre-back needs this and a midfielder needs this and a, a forward or a winger needs this. It really depends, actually, on things like the, uh, uh, the actual role in the team. So you can be talking about a defensive midfielder like Nid indeedy for Leicester as opposed to you know a box-to-box -box midfielder like Canty sorry I'm using all examples who play for Leicester but you know that, that, that's two contrasting players who would have different energy requirements then indeed he's a bit bigger than Canty so that sort of balances that out to a degree but it's the same thing with with fullbacks you can have a defensive fullback like a Christian Fuchs or you can have an attacking fullback like a James Justin who moves, goes up and down the pitch a lot, you know, so quite different, same position, same, you know, both fullbacks, but they're playing a different kind of role in the team. So if, if you 
get that. And also the style of the team. Are they, you know, counter-attacking teams that are going to stay mostly defensive, stay back, cover, and then break quickly? Or are they a, you know, a high-pressing team like a Manchester City? Some of those top teams, those players actually work the hardest when you actually look at the figures in terms of how much distance they run. But they can also make the opposition run a lot because they keep the ball a lot better, you know, pass it around yeah. between themselves. So the others are always chasing them. And, and that's always a, a good tactic in football. Keep the ball, work hard, but make the other ones chase around after it. We've talked a lot on the podcast about um, the modern game and how things are progressing and when you, you just mentioned styles of play there, how, how aggressive teams are when they're pressing and the distance they're covering and everything like that. And looking forward over the next few years, obviously just pre- predicting the future a little bit. But if we're thinking about it's going on that trend, that's going to have a big part on how we prepare players away from the pitch as well, isn't it, with the nutrition? Because they're needing to be fueled for a, a slightly different game, a more intense game that's going to be more repeated efforts and all the rest of it. So that comes into play as well, doesn't it? How things are going to progress going forward. Yeah, and more and more we've seen over the years how players have become kind of much more athletic. There's much more focus on having the right body composition or there's not carrying around too much excess fat. You know, the more and more the game is played, you're seeing that progression of the greater athleticism in the uh, in the players and some of them now you know the, the speeds that they can run at you know they're as fast as some of the top sprinters in the world or not far behind it really for some of at least over short distances you know the player you know football player doesn't have to run 100 meters you know in in under 10 seconds but you know they need to be able to cover those first 10 to 15 yards or so very quickly you know and those that could do that are the best, but you know they they've got to be able to to be have the physical body composition and the you know the muscle attributes to to do that. Part of all of that ultimately is influenced by what they eat and what they drink. If you weren't able to make it to our last event of 2021 at Salford City with Professor Damien Hughes. You can go and check out his presentation, Who Wants to Be a High Performer, over on our online community. Now, if you're a member, just log in and go into Network Meeting Presentations part of the website. You'll be able to check it out there. If you're not already a member, go and check it out. You can get yourself a free month by going to footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab at the top. Sign up there. It'll give you one month free on the community. You can check out Damien's presentation as well as all the recent presentations, including... Uh, the three from our recent Nottingham Forest event as well, from Brent Dickinson, Mark Devonshire and Simon Brundish, plus plenty more as well. Um, sign up on the community. It'll give you one month free. After that free month, it's only £4.99 per month going forward. So go and check it out. If you're not already a member, footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab, sign up there, grab yourself a free month and go and check out the most recent upload, Damien Hughes' presentation, Who Wants to Be a High Performer? Here's part two of the podcast with Michael Gleason. And I was going to ask about what is probably a, ma- a macronutrient of a lot of coaches' diets <laughs> in caffeine. Um, because, like, and I'm obviously joking that, like, coaches will rely on it a lot of the time, won't they, to, to get them through the day. But how does that fit in with players? Because um, 
like there's a, there's a lot to read around caffeine, isn't there? Using it at certain times and the whole factor of night games. And I've spoke to a few people about this, like playing late at night and then you expect it to go to sleep after it and all the rest of it. Like what, what's the sort of approach you take in terms of caffeine? Yeah. I mean, caffeine. Yeah. I mean, yeah, not a macronutrient, not even a micronutrient. It's not even an essential nutrient. It's something we I was saying that as a as, tongue in cheek. As, yeah, I know. As a, as a, as a, as a supplement that, uh, we know will improve performance in uh, football and other endurance-related uh, activities. And, you know, it works by stimulating mental function and delaying mental fatigue at the and physical fatigue or its perception of fatigue in the brain uh, at that level. Um, and in football, it is a common supplement probably the most common supplement that's used not for training but for uh, for, for for match day performance because you don't need it during training but uh, for match day performance yes it can improve the uh, uh, the on-pitch performance by delaying the uh, the onset fatigue and also increasing uh, cognitive function or there's things like decision making and uh, you know delaying mental tiredness fatigue as, as the game progresses so mostly you're perhaps going to think about wanting to need it towards you know in the second half now you can either feed that give that caffeine in doses about one hour before kickoff if you want the level of caffeine in the blood to be the highest it can be at the start of a game some some clubs adopt that approach and that might be selected by some players to do to do that you never know how long you're going to be on the pitch for. Some players might get taken off for six, after 60 minutes. So, you know, if, if that's likely to be the case, you might as well give them that caffeine right at the start of the game. For those that are going to play the full 90 minutes, you might think perhaps, well, might, maybe more important to give them a, a caffeine boost at half time. And uh, rather than giving it in pill or powder, which would be the normal way of uh, consuming the caffeine, unless you prefer to take it as just a strong cup of coffee or maybe a couple of cups of coffee would give you the, the right sort of dose pre-match. At half time, you want the, the caffeine to be much more rapidly absorbed than it is from pills or powders or even coffee. So the fastest way is to actually give players caffeine containing chewing gum. You can get chewing gums commercially that will provide you with 100 milligrams of, uh, uh, of caffeine per single chew of, of, of the gum. So you take one or at most two of those at half time. And that is rapidly absorbed because that you chew it. And most of quite a considerable amount of that caffeine is actually absorbed through the lining of the mouth in other words, it doesn't have to go down into the gut and be absorbed that way which is the way it is through coffee and powders and pills and uh, you get a much more rapid increase in the blood caffeine concentration by doing it as a gum and that's what you need if you want it to kick in you know, towards the last 20, 25 minutes of the second half, you need it to be rapidly absorbed. You can only achieve that really by having uh, caffeine gum at, uh, at half time. But always remember to spit out that gum before you go onto the pitch to avoid that well, potentially life-threatening risk of actually if you inhale that gum because you, you're oh, okay. chewing away and it goes down your yeah. airway. You can block your airways and, you know, you, you could 
you could kill yourself doing that. Mm. And I see some, you see some play. I've seen some players going onto the pitch still chewing gum. I would never ever recommend that for mm. health reasons. Yeah, and I know you tell a, a story, and I've I've heard this before. I'm sure many listeners have behind a certain Leicester former England striker, his sort of approach with energy drinks and and relating it to caffeine. But what about the sort of overuse of caffeine? If players are drinking like a lot of coffee throughout the day or they're they're maybe drinking coffee and then they're having some sort of supplement at the club and it's all a combination, like where does that fit in? What's the approach with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't want to be drinking things like, you know, Monster and Red Bull uh, energy drinks uh, and then having additional caffeine from the supplement because the sports scientists or the, the nutritionists say, you know, everybody else is taking this caffeine, you should be as well. You've got to, you know, the, the nutritionist or the, the guy who's advising on the the ingestion of these ergogenic performance enhancing supplements before or during the game really needs to be aware of what the, you know, the, the usual habits of the, the player are. And as you mentioned, you know, another alternative to coffee or pills or powders or gum is to take energy drinks um, like like the ones we mentioned there. And would they, if a player preferred that, because obviously you've mentioned a few of the ones that are available, would, they, would that be, um, would you prefer other, you've mentioned the gum, you've mentioned sort of coffee, things like that, would they be a preferred way of getting caffeine into the system or is it a case of um, personal um likes and dislikes well i think and anything that's taken on a match day has to really also suit the player and you know the player has to tolerate it even like the way uh that uh, that particular supplement or food or whatever they're having it is you know some players will uh, prefer to take it in the form of a, an energy drink. And I think you just let them go with that, you know, as long as they're, they're still getting the same effect, you know, just a, just a different sort of route or food or beverage item that they're consuming to achieve that effect. But if that's, if that's what they're used to, generally they know that that works for them. There's always that argument that's what Alan Shearer used to say about chicken and beans as his pre-match meal. Well, it always worked for me. Mm. You know, question is, could he have actually actually performed better and scored more goals even if he'd actually taken on board something actually a little bit more suitable than chicken and beans as his pre-match meal? He'll never know because he didn't try it. But when, when players get used to something, you know, it doesn't upset their stomach which is always another issue with uh, trying out new stuff. You could all, you should always try out these things in training first to find out, does it suit you? Do you tolerate it? You know, does it work for you even? Do you actually feel that sort of little mental kick you get from that caffeine? You know, if it's not really doing anything for you, you don't think it is, it probably isn't. And so, uh, you know, you have to take that on board. And that can apply to pre-match meals as, as well. There are some players who don't actually, you know, the, the advice, you know, the guidance, the recommendations from that UEFA expert committee are to have a, a pre-match meal that's high in easily absorbable carbohydrate and a little protein, but low in fat and fiber. So it's easily digested within three hours before you go onto the pitch. You go onto a pitch with virtually an empty stomach apart from a little bit of fluid or 
carbohydrate gel you might have ingested, you know, a few minutes before before kickoff. Uh, some players don't even like having a meal. So if they've got a midweek, a midday game, a 3 p.m. kickoff, they'll have a good breakfast instead, you know, which is probably, you know, nine o'clock-ish, six hours before kickoff. And then when it comes to time for the pre-match meal, they don't want a right lot then because they don't find it doesn't agree with them or maybe they just don't absorb it, digest it as quickly as others. We're all individuals, so things are different. Uh, players like Ilkay Gundogan, for example, says always says, always have a good breakfast. But for a pre-match meal, I just want something like a, a banana cake and some mm. strong coffee. So he's getting his caffeine from that. And he's getting a bit of extra energy and mostly carbohydrate from his banana muffin or something like that. You know, and uh, if that's what suits him and works for him and he's not comfortable with having, you know, a full sort of salmon and pasta pre-match meal, for example, which is a very suitable meal for many players, then, uh, you know, best to go with the personal preference of the player. You have to be bendable in, 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 in that sense. You want the players to do the best that's, you know, the recommendations allow, but if it simply doesn't work for some players, you have to go with what works for them. And we're touching on here in terms of habits of players before games and that's a tough one, isn't it? Because we're touching on the whole psychology side of changing players' routines and things. So you do have to be careful with that, don't you? Because certain players will believe um, whether it's optimal or not. They'll believe that, like you've used the share example, they'll believe that pro- approach works for them. So it, I suppose that's the, that's the careful area that we've got to take into consideration, isn't it? That we obviously do want to help the player, we want to try and do all the things we spoke about that Arsene Wenger was talking about before. But at the same time, that's the time where they're going out to perform, isn't it? So we want their head to be in, in the right space. Yes. And it, it all, again, it all comes back to educating the players. You can tell them, you know, this is what the experts say should work best for people who are going to play a football match to have on match day, you know, in terms of your nutrition for pre-match. And also this is the sort of thing you should be eating post-match. You know, uh, so the you know if you can get that on board in their brain, this is what you should be doing. If you're doing something different, you know, start to question why you're doing it different. Have you actually tried this other approach? It might actually work even better than what you're doing now. So why don't you try it before training? You know, and and try it out in training. See how you feel with it. Don't wait till match day to try it out. You should never be doing new things like that on match day because it could go the other way, you know, might not be good, might be bad for your performance. So find out in training where these things actually uh, work for you and whether changing your habit can actually, you know, actually improve yourself a little bit. You're only ever talking about sort of, you know, small percentage increases in performance. We're not sort of talking about, you know, vastly improving people, but uh, it can make that little extra difference, particularly when you've got a hard game against a tough opposition where you're going to have to really work hard to get your points. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing is, um, and I know, again, something touched on in the book, is that utilising feeding opportunities and hydrating opportunities as well. So not only in the game, but you could touch on that if, if you want mind but also throughout the week as well like in terms of where the opportunities we can take advantage of to make sure players are fueled optimally um yeah i mean during the game there's very limited opportunities to take on board you know fuel 
or or fluid. And and the main concern during match play is always to try and make sure players don't get dehydrated and they're getting little tops of carbohydrate where, wherever possible. And you might have heard about this uh, idea of uh, mouth rinsing of uh, carbohydrate drinks. In other words, you, you take a, a slug of a carbohydrate drink from a bottle and you swish it around in your mouth for about 10 seconds. And the science shows you can get a performance benefit from that um, for endurance type sports like like football. Um, and in all the studies, they, they, they spit it out. But it's because they're trying to discern the difference between um, ingesting carbohydrate, actually swallowing it and going down into the gut and being absorbed and used by the muscles and by the brain and having an influence that way, as opposed to just swishing it around in the mouth uh, with a mouth rinse and, and not actually swallowing it. Uh, the research indicates that if you swish it around in the mouth for about 10 seconds, some of that carbohydrate is actually detected by receptors in the mouth. They send signals to the brain and the brain interprets that as saying, oh, some carbohydrate energy is coming on the way. That's raising my mood and my performance. And so it's almost tricking the brain into thinking some energy in the form of carbohydrate, which is what's going to be used for high intensity exercise, uh, is actually on the way. Uh, but in reality, you want the players to swish it around in their mouths. And the, the opportunities are when there are sort of breaks in play, you know, somebody's on, on pitch being treated for an injury. You've maybe got 20, 30 seconds or so when you, know, you can be handed a sports bottle from the sports scientists on the pitch and, and, and have a little swig then and you see players spitting it out but they shouldn't be because if you swish it around in your mouth you might get a performance benefit that way you might also get a performance an extra performance benefit if you're actually able to swallow it because then you're getting the fluid and the carbs going into your gut you've got time to absorb it some of it at least and that'll provide a little bit extra fuel that way for your muscle and your brain and your brain will now know well i'm not actually being tricked into this i am actually getting some real carbohydrate fuel energy you know so uh that that's the way to do it uh not copy what was done in the studies because that was just done to determine whether this mouth rinsing had a real effect independent of anything you actually then uh, swallowed digested and absorbed is that i was about to ask when you were talking about that the benefit why would what would be the benefit over not drinking it but obviously you've, you've summed that up by saying that it isn't and it, it's from the studies so but you see that a lot don't you you see a lot of players doing that um so whether they're doing it thinking that they are getting that benefit or whether it's just it's just oh a, yeah something yeah, they do. yeah people people have read you know the, the people who are advising them probably yeah. have, have read the papers they've seen that's what was done in that study oh and that improved performance so you, you, know, you get the players to repeat that on the pitch. But if you really think about it, you know, the logic of it is you shouldn't, if you don't need to spit it out, don't yeah. swallow yeah. it, you know. Get the full effects. Yeah, indeed. Double whammy. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Um, another area, a big, we could probably do a whole podcast on this, but I had to ask around, because a few episodes ago, we actually had Tom Hewin, who's from Forest Green Rovers on the podcast. Right. 
And I'm sure you know that Forest Green, uh, they take a vegan veganism approach to the club. So to how the players prepare, um, it's not just food. There's a, there's a lot of other factors to the club as well. But in terms of food, they are, the, the as far as I know and what they put out, they're the world's first vegan club. Um, and we touched on before, there's a lot of information out about their veganism, vegetarian um, approaches. Can you be vegan or vegetarian and perform at the top level in the Premier League? I'd say probably you can, but you would need some serious nutrition advice to be able to achieve it. Not so much in terms of carbohydrate, because we get most of our carbs from you know, plant food sources anyway. But there are other issues like a, a vegan diet doesn't contain any B12. It might be lacking in iron unless you're very careful about your selection of food sources. It could be lacking in calcium because you're missing out dairy products, milk and cheese and yogurt and that kind of thing. You know, so, that, so there are concerns over both, I would say, overall energy intake, uh, sufficient protein intake, iron and some of these other essential micronutrients like iron itself, but also uh, vitamin B12. Um, I, I wouldn't be for any uh, an, any club at all uh, enforcing a vegan or even vegetarian diet on their players. I mean, mm. you'd never get a Sergio Aguero working, playing for you if that was the case. I mean, Sergio likes his meat. And I know the guys at Manchester City have to, had to wean him off his red meat, which he liked pretty much for every meal. And persuading that maybe something like salmon or something might be a little bit more digestible on for a pre-match meal rather than a, you know, a steak and potato. Mm. So, you know, uh, again, it's, it's about letting players go with their own preferences to some degree. And of course, that, that, that's where the people who think they like the performance chefs come in because they're very able at cooking a whole variety of different meals to suit a whole different bunch of nationalities and you know, religious uh, requirements when it comes to food uh, while also making very tasty and nutritious meals that meet the you know the macronutrient requirements in terms of carbohydrate and protein in particular that you're looking to achieve in those meals for performance and, and recovery from both match days and, and and training so actually enforcing people to do be a, a particular you know, type of diet like a vegan, which is, you know, the pretty much the strictest diet you can sort of get. Vegetarian isn't too bad as long as you allow things like eggs and dairy products. You know, that, that, that's considerably more flexible than a very strict vegan, plant-only, nothing from animal food sources sort of approach. I would be seriously concerned that players were not being nourished sufficiently or be and you Forest Green are pretty much top of their league, aren't they, at the moment? So, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, uh, if they're educated right and they've got a good nutrition in the, in their nutritionist in there who can advise, you know, in quite detailed manner to the players what they should be eating, it's maybe doable, but whether ethically it's right to actually enforce players to take on board a particular diet, uh, I'm not too sure. Yeah, but and the thing is, there's more players that uh, I think just as society as a whole, there's a lot of people that are 
um, using vegan diets or vegetarian diets as their approach now for whatever reason, isn't it? So when you talked about some of the micronutrients that people might be low in from dropping certain food types, yeah. if you had a player come to you that, would, that wanted to take a vegan approach um, and wanted to do it, if we, if we revert back to sort of the food first approach, trying to, trying to do it through food as much as possible, do you think they could get everything they need from food if they're really open to um, planning things out the way they need to? Or, or is there going to be a need for supplementation because we're taking food types away? Uh, there's probably almost certainly going to be a need for some supplementation. Like I say, calcium, iron, vitamin B12, definitely, because you don't get it from anything except animal food sources. And that's important vitamin for an essential vitamin for normal red blood cell productions as a risk you might become anemic if you don't have enough vitamin b12 and obviously that's not good for uh, for performance it you know it's it's what helps you to create red blood cells and the hemoglobin they carry which carries the oxygen in your blood which obviously you need for this type of uh, activity so absolutely essential in that sense and maybe vitamin d might be a concern as well, which is actually for many players, particularly in the in the winter months, because we get most of it through sunlight and the, the, the dietary sources we get it from are mostly from oily fish and, and dairy products and some fortified foods. Yeah. No, I just think it's a really it's an interesting area to cover, isn't it? Because it's it's definitely becoming more apparent. Um, and it's I think it's something that more players are gonna a look towards and I, I know there's some Premier League players that are taking that approach now but it's just making sure that they're doing it in the best way possible I suppose isn't it yeah in, yeah in many respects it can be a you know a very healthy diet because you're getting very very little if any saturated fat in that diet you're getting all the nice sort of healthy fats the polyunsaturated and monounsaturated fats you're getting plenty of vitamins minerals all these plant polyphenols and other compounds that are in there which are generally all good for health and your 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 gut microbiota will will like that sort of diet because it'll provide them with plenty of fiber as well and providing you get enough protein and carb and you know these other focus on the micronutrients that you might be missing with that sort of diet and supplement with that uh you know where, where necessary and in part that might need some degree of monitoring of your players again at the top level you know EPL players get blood samples taken from them during pre-season maybe another time during the season to check their various uh, status for these various micronutrients and you know things like vitamin d and iron in in particular will be a particular focus uh, of those so you can check through some blood tests whether or not you're getting enough of those essential micronutrients. And then you can correct it appropriately through, you know, promoting certain foods in the diet or by taking a, an appropriate supplement. And is that something you'd encourage for players to do anyway, regardless of what diet they're following, to, to get bloods done, just to have a look at exactly what's going on and then give it a little bit more of a personalised approach to supplementation or whatever is needed? Yeah, again, it, it, sometimes it comes down to the budget of the of the club or the individual. If you're talking about an, an amateur player who's going to have to do that kind of for themselves, but they yeah. can get their blood checked once a year, and probably the best time to do that is probably you know at the start of pre-season, see you know what status are you then. 
it shouldn't cost too much to, to get that done, you know, to privately and just have a, a pretty much a, a health blood screen. Mm. It's like a bit like what we, some of us older guys get for free once you get to over 60 or something, 65 from the doctors, you know, it's sort of a health screen check of your, of your bloods. Uh, and that should give you some idea where, where you are. For things like vitamin D, you can almost say, well, it's very likely, unless I've been on a nice sunny holiday, like, like I just some been people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, uh, if you ain't got a suntan, then you're probably in winter going to be deficient in, in vitamin D. <laughs> yes, yes, looking a bit pale there, Ben. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, as as a guard against that, or to correct what probably will develop into an insufficiency if not a frank deficiency over the next few months of winter then you can just take a daily uh, 2000 international unit per day vitamin d3 supplement and that will make sure your levels will stay uh, at least well above inadequate in other words, they, they'll, they'll, they'll be up to where you want them to be if you're taking 2,000 units a day. So even if you haven't got the, uh, if you can't afford to go and get a, a blood test in October to see where your vitamin D status is, just assume it's going to drop because it will drop over yeah. the winter months anyway. Uh, you just can't get enough in the diet. And when you haven't got strong sunlight, which you have from October to March, essentially, you're not going to get enough sunlight to produce enough vitamin D in your body. Your vitamin D status will go down. So have a 2000 international unit vitamin D3 supplement a day, and that will ensure that you maintain a, a reasonable level of vitamin D3 status. But don't overdo it and start taking excessive amounts because sometimes too much can actually be harmful. And the uh, the European Food Standards Agency, for example, which produces the regulations on uh, maximum amounts of intakes of various supplements for health, uh, recommends you should never take more than 4,000 international units per day. But 2,000 a day is perfectly safe. Brilliant. Great bit of advice. Mike, I really appreciate you doing this. I think we've covered quite a bit there in, in uh, just under an hour. So... Yeah. And we've absolutely flown through it, but I feel like I've obviously um, got the book and had a look through some of the content you've got in there. And we've touched on the very tip of the information that's in there. Um, so I, I do recommend people to go and get it. And not only for the fact of the um, methodology and some of your experiences at the start of the book, but also we talked about it just before. You've got some recipes in there as well. So you've got some actual practical advice for players coaches whoever wants to use it in terms of this is the this is the knowledge this the experience behind it and this is how you go about it haven't you yeah exactly i mean this is it you know the scientists talk in terms of like uh, grams of carbohydrate per kilogram body mass per day and amounts of protein amounts of fat you know at the end of the day we don't eat you know yeah we eat macronutrients but you know we eat them as food real food and real meals on plates, a mixture of, you know, things, meats, fish, poultry, eggs, dairy produce, vegetables, fruits, etc. So you've got to, at some point, somebody has to take that information that scientists say, this is how much carbohydrate and protein you should be eating, and turn it into 
meals. So why not taste it into really nice, tasty meals that people are going to really enjoy? And that's the beauty of teaming up with performance chefs, which so many top professional clubs are doing now. They work between the nutritionist or the fitness and conditioning coach and the performance chef and the player. You know, it's a three-way interaction, maybe a three-way phone call. But it's also knowing what the player wants to eat, what they like to eat, what's their favourite foods. And the chef can create those things from the macronutrient intakes that the uh, the nutritionist is uh, is recommending to do. And ultimately, practically, what's going on the plate and what you're going to eat. And, you know, if you give people that stuff that they don't like eating, they just won't eat it. Yeah. So you're not going to achieve those macronutrient intakes you want unless it's stuff the player really likes, enjoys eating. And often you might even be cooking for not only them, but their family. So you've got to, you know, cater for the needs of the, uh, you know, the, the wife and the kids as well. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, where would people go to get the book? Uh, well, it should be available to uh, order online from the usual outlets like uh, Amazon, Bookshop, WH Smith, Blackwell's, Foils, all, all, all these uh, online bookstores. And I'm hoping it will appear in the in the bookshops in the in the new year as well. So your likes of your WH Smith and your Waterstones and Blackwells, etc. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I really appreciate you doing this. We've covered some great stuff there. I could probably talk about this all day with, with someone well, like Well, maybe yourself. we could do a follow-up sometime. You know, well, you, let's do it. We could focus on sort of differences between the needs and the uh, the, the timings of things for feeding the, you know, fueling up the amateur players who play sort of 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, which the pros never do, Yeah, you know, and, and the needs of the both the amateur player and the, the junior players, the academy players, who do most of their trainings in their evening after a full day at work or at school, whereas the pros are doing most of their training in the morning. So there are subtle differences and that yeah. influences the sort of food strategies you're going to have to have on those sort of training days and match days. And that's a, we could spend another hour on that. I'm sure. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. If anyone listening to this has got any other specific questions or topics or areas you want us to cover, if Mike would be so kind on coming back on, then reach out. You can get in touch with us at, at Football Fit Fed. Um, drop us the questions and I'll, I'll try and hook up another call with Mike and get him back on and get him to answer them because there's been some great stuff in this one. So I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for sending the book over. It's, it looks absolutely brilliant. Um, it's a great resource. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate you giving up the time and doing it. Thanks, Ben. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to episode 168 and thank you for Michael for coming on the podcast. Like I said at the start of the episode, if you've got any questions on specific topics that you want Michael to answer, please send them in to mail at footballfitfed.com or you can send them over on social media at footballfitfed and we'll get a part two booked in and answer some specific questions around anything that we've covered in the podcast or anything to do with nutrition and how players prepare. Go and give Michael a follow also over on Twitter at Prof Mike Gleason, all one word. Um, and you can check out his book, Nutrition for Top Performance in Football. Um, I think you can pretty much search that and you can grab that anywhere that books are available, Amazon and all the rest of them. In terms of takeaways, 
Michael spoke about educating players around habits, which I think is really important around nutrition. He also spoke about ignoring the noise. Nutrition is definitely an area that you see trends, you see people that are very um, opinionated and passionate about certain approaches. And I think you do have to have that ability to ignore the noise and pick out the relevant bits of information at the right time. Um, He spoke about the individualized approach to nutrition as well, which I know um, Matt Jones has actually touched on that before when he's been on the podcast. And I know a lot of great nutritionists speak about that individualized approach. The, the, the approach for each player is different, not just in terms of their demands, but also likes, dislikes. Um, there's a lot of other things that go into the decision-making process around what a player eats. And then I think the other important factor is if you've got the um, finances and, and the sort of um, ability to do this is the role of performance chefs. Like you see a lot of players employing them now privately working at their houses which is great and obviously if players can do that that that's um, a great resource to have but if they can't do that obviously the importance of having performance chefs someone that understands the demands of the game and I know this is going to be rife across football anyway now but if it isn't in place or if you may be working at a lower level is there anyone that you can reach out to to supply players with the right not only information, but maybe the right foods as well. And, and I will just give a big shout out at this point to one of our sponsors of our networking events, because if anyone is looking for some high quality food prep for teams, for players when you're on the road or even at the training ground, check out the Good Food Prep HQ. They supply the food for our networking events. And I've had a lot of different food prep companies. And I've got to say, these guys are up there with the best because the not only do you get the right macronutrients um the right food types involved in the in the um packages that they send out but it tastes good and it's not something that you're sort of forcing down it's something that you enjoy um they're very creative with the foods so go and give it go and check them out and if it is something you're looking for go and hit them up as well but Big thank you again for, to Michael for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate him coming on. Hopefully we can sort out a part two very soon. So fire in your questions and we'll get them over to him. And I'll speak to you again next week in episode 169.